just say a uh, welcome back to many of our young people who have finished a semester of uh, college, have been away with us for a while, and it's nice to have you home, and uh, nice to hear your voices this morning as you sang. I'm sure you sang out, and so uh, I trust you had a, a great semester at school, and we'll enjoy some downtime and a bit of a reprieve here, and we're delighted as your church family to have you back with us for just a short period of time. Let me also say um, tonight uh, we have uh, an evening service. Uh, maybe not all of you know that. We do have an evening service. It's at 6 p.m. It's different than this service. And in our evening service tonight, we're going to mention um, just uh, something about our missionary family that we're sending out to Central Asia. Um, they have uh, acquired their visas. Those are in hand. Thank the Lord for that. And they have purchased tickets, and they will be leaving the day after Christmas, December 22nd, or 26th, uh, to head to Central Asia. And uh, tonight we'll be mentioning some things, how as a church family we can encourage them along the way and uh, pray for them in regard to that. So uh, you'll want to come back and, and hear about that and how you can participate with us as we send out these missionaries uh, to Central Asia. Well, please uh, take your Bibles again and open to Colossians chapter 1. And let me ask you, uh, what is your favorite Christmas carol? Certainly you have one. I trust it's one of the religious nature and sacred nature. You can probably sing that carol from memory. Uh, maybe several lines of it. Well, God has given us music as a gift. It is a means of grace to us. It, it aids in our memory. It evokes in us uh, emotion uh, for worship. And it is something that the Lord's people will do for all of eternity, is still engage in this gracious gift that God has given us to sing have you ever wondered, though, what the early church sang? We do have an inspired hymn book in our Bible. It is the book of Psalms, and each one of those is an inspired piece given by God uh, for His people in the Old Testament, and no doubt those believers in the New Testament sang that as well. But, but there are other hymns in our New Testament uh, that are recorded for us, and it's commonly believed by most scholars were sung among the people of God. So imagine, what did Peter sing when he went to church? What did John the Apostle sing? What did, what did Mary, the mother of Jesus, sing when she gathered with the Lord's people for worship? Perhaps they sang Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Because this is an ancient hymn. Most scholars agree with regard to that. We don't have the tune. We don't know the notes that were put to music to sing this, but we do have the text. And this text is a very rich text. In fact, uh, this hymn is probably, in my thinking, the greatest exaltation of Christ in all your New Testament. 
You have other passages that come close. That first chapter of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that's a wonderful praise of Christ, but, but I think Colossians exceeds that in some way. There's that first chapter of the book of Hebrews. In times past, God spoke to us by His prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His dear Son, by whom He made all things. And Jesus is the exact imprint of His nature. And He's greater than the angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, let all the angels of God worship Him? That's a great passage. But I think Colossians 1 stands above you have this condensed hymn tightly fit together. Fourteen specific things are said about Jesus in this hymn. And imagine singing this with one voice as a congregation and just line after line. You're reminding yourself and you're affirming to brothers and sisters, this is who Jesus is and this is what he has done and this is why there are no rivals. It's a masterful thing. And this hymn answers a question for us. It really answers this question, who is this man? Who is this person? And you can see how it answers that. It begins in verse 15, he is. And that'll be said repeatedly, he is this, and he is this, and this is what he's done, and this is who he is. And so this hymn really answers this question, who is this man? And getting that question right is not merely an, an activity of academic pursuit. I mean, who is Jesus? I, I know the formula. I can spit out all the right answers. Getting this question right is essential to the safekeeping of your eternal soul. If you don't get this right, you miss forgiveness with God. So it's a profoundly influential and important question. How is this hymn structured? We looked at this last week, but let me just remind you, this, this hymn, if you think of it, think of it in these terms, it's a hymn of two stanzas. We sang hymns this morning, some of them had several stanzas, and then there was kind of a chorus. This just has the stanzas, no refrain, no chorus, but there are two of them. The first obviously begins in verse 15, and it speaks of Christ, that he is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And there you have it, that is the first stanza. And verse 15, and verse 16 says, for or because explains why that is the case. And that runs all the way down to the end of verse 17. And this first stanza focuses on a particular aspect of Jesus when it speaks three times it uses the word creation. And it talks about all things. And what this first stanza does for us is it teaches us that Jesus is the Lord of all creation. 
that he is not in the created order, but he's before that. I mentioned last week that you have, you have two categories of things. You have created things and uncreated things. And Jesus is in this category of uncreated things, but it was by means of him that all these created things came into being. And so it's a hymn that exalts Jesus in his rightful place as the Lord of all creation. And all creation should acknowledge him as its Lord. But the second stanza will be our focus this morning, and that begins in verse 18. And just notice the focus of this stanza. It speaks of Jesus and says that he is the head of the body, the what? The church. And he's going to speak about the church in terms and its relationship to Jesus. And ultimately, he's going to speak in verse 20 how Jesus reconciled things to himself. He, he brought them into, into a place of peace that were formerly at odds. And so the, the second stanza really focuses on Jesus and his reconciliation and we would say this, if the first stanza is Jesus is Lord of all creation, the second stanza tells us that Jesus is Lord of the church. And that's going to be our focus this morning, Jesus as Lord of his church. Now at Christmas time, so much is said about Jesus, but so little is truly known and believed. And as I mentioned last week, I want us to take just a few minutes this morning, and, and can we do the hard work of removing ourselves this morning from the fact that, that this sermon must quickly get to me, and what about me, and, and where am I in, in this hymn? You're, you're, you are, but you're not preeminent, Okay. So, so can we just kind of set that aside and say, for a minute, I can just relish in the fact that even in this Christmas season, I can come here and spend 40 concentrated minutes on Jesus, who is Lord of his church. My goal this morning is not academic and information. My goal is to move us to worship, that we would see Jesus as he truly is. And we would glory in that for no other reason than that is who he is. So with that goal in mind, let's enter into this text like a gemologist would view a rare jewel. And they would hold it up and get it under a microscope and turn it and look at each cut and the way it captures the light in different ways. And they would simply be filled with admiration for the glory of the thing. Can we do that together just for a few minutes? Let's ask God to help us do just that, all right? Lord, would you help us this morning as we examine who Jesus is in his rightful place and that we would simply glory in the fact that he is Lord of his people. And it would be reflected in our lives that he indeed is our Lord. And we ask that you would do this for your name's sake. Amen.
Where do we begin in the second stanza? The apostle tells us in verse 18 of Jesus that he is the head of the body, the church. What does he mean by that? Church, as you may know, in the New Testament is a word that simply means assembly. It was used in the common language of the day whenever they would have an assembly of people in a square for a town meeting. It would be called the the church. Well, New Testament writers adopted that language and said what you have in the assembly of God's people, you have a church, but it's assembly under the headship of one person. And so when it says that Jesus is the head of his church, he also gives this metaphor to help us understand what he means. Jesus is the head of his people, and when you read your New Testament, there are a lot of different metaphors that are given for the church. For instance, the church is referred to as a flock, like like a shepherd with a flock. It's referred to as a family, uh, the family of God, and that's why sometimes we refer to each other as brother and sister. It's like an army that is marching to battle. It is like a building being built up and erected stone by stone. It's the Apostle Paul that really introduces us to this imagery of the church being like a body, and this body certainly has a head. Well, how do you become a part of this body, which is the church? Now, I have a verse on the screen here for you. You can turn there if you'd like, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this question is answered. Notice it says, Paul writing again, he says, for just as the body, and there, think of your physical body, okay, your literal physical body, just as your body is one, but it has many members, right? It has hands and eyes and arms. He says, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Christ has a body, as it were. How do you get into that body? Well, it's In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now, notice the element into which we're baptized. He doesn't say we're baptized into water. You've seen that before, right? That's what we do up here on occasion. That baptism doesn't doesn't do anything per se, but it's actually a public testimony of this reality. And what is this reality? It's this. It's that when somebody comes to place their faith in Jesus Christ, they've realized that they are lost. They're estranged from God. Their sin has separated themselves from Him. And they realize that Jesus is the only answer to that problem. He has paid the full price for that sin. And they, in faith, reach out and embrace him as their only hope of forgiveness. It's at that moment that the Bible says this takes place. It's like at that moment you are baptized or immersed, as it were, into the body of Christ. You're now united to Jesus, and you become a part of his body, as it were. And that is through the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell within you. So when the Bible speaks of the church as a body, literally what it's saying is this. When you come to faith in Christ, you have this living, organic connection to him. You're a part of him. This is how you get in. It's through faith in Christ when the Spirit comes to live within you. But what are these implications? 
What does it mean then that Christ is the head of the body when we're told this? Let me go back here. There we go. Oh, I'm sorry, I need to go forward. Nope, I need to go back. All right, we're good. Okay. What does it mean then? He's, he's the head of this body, all right? Well, think about it. What is your head to your body? You get up in the morning and you, you look at that thing in the mirror, right? That knob on top of you. What, what does that thing do? Well, for one, without your head, you're dead, right? It, 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 is, it is a source in many ways. And, and it's not only a source, it's, it's sustaining. Think of what happens through your head, right? If you're going to live today and breathe air, where does that come? It comes through your head. If you're going to eat today and sustain your physical body, where does that come? It comes through your head. And this is part of the metaphor of Jesus being head of the church. He is its source of life, and he is its supplier and sustainer. But in Colossians, the specific thing here is this. What else is your head? What goes on in your head? You see things. You know things. You understand things. You reason to things. You make decisions. Your head leads your body. And this is the ultimate sense in which Colossians is speaking of Jesus as the head. He's the leader of his people. He provides wisdom and information and insight and direction. And we as the body are totally dependent upon him for that. We should look to him for those things. So he being the head of the body, the church, there's this organic connection to Christ who is our leader, and we are to live under his direction and under his authority. Now I just want to make this point of application. Is that your response to Jesus? Have you thought this week the direction your head wants you to go? Have you thought anything this week about how your head wants you to live? And have you surrendered your heart to that and been committed to that? This is what Paul means when he speaks of Jesus being the head of the body, the church, But notice he also says this, that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the head of the church, and he is the beginning. Here's our question, the beginning of what? What is Jesus the beginning of? Well, what has he just spoken of in the first part of the verse? The church. And Jesus is the beginning of the church. It begins with him. In fact, we're told in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 that his people were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And when it says that Jesus is the beginning of the church, I think it's really speaking of the beginning in the sense that he's the beginning of the new creation. Now, the Bible tells us that there is a day coming when Jesus will return to this earth. And when he does, he'll make all things new. All the creation will be restored to its rightful order. 
But do you realize that Jesus was the beginning of that? Well, how was he the beginning of this new creation? We'll keep reading in the verse. He is the beginning, the what? First born from the dead. Well, what does that mean? Actually, if you read this in the original language, there is no the before firstborn. It kind of puts these terms in what we call apposition. He is the beginning, firstborn from the dead. So what it's saying is, he's the beginning, here's what that means, firstborn from the dead. Well, what does this being firstborn from the dead have to do with this new creation? Well, remember that term firstborn? We saw it back up in verse 15 when it talked about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation. And there we said that that term can either mean chronology, first in order, or it can mean priority, first in rank. And there's no doubt that in verse 15 it's talking about first in rank or honor. And that would be the same case here in verse 18. He is the firstborn from the dead. Obviously, if it's speaking somebody coming from the dead, it's talking about what? A resurrection. And it's saying his resurrection is of the highest rank and the highest order. Why do we know that? Let me ask you, was anybody raised from the dead before Jesus? Did Jesus raise anybody from the dead before he was raised? Yes. Can you think of any names? How about a guy named Lazarus? Well, well, why does he say Jesus is the firstborn from the dead? He's obviously not talking chronology. He's saying Jesus' resurrection is different. It's the, it's the highest rank of a different kind of order of things. It's the beginning of something new. Well, how is that the case? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to go with me there in your Bible. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read of the resurrection chapter in your Bible, and Paul is talking, and he's, he's speaking to the believers at Corinth because they're confused about what resurrection means, and will there really be a resurrection? 1 Corinthians 15 and just notice with me verse 20. We're just going to read this. I'll make a few comments along, but I think you can follow the argument pretty easily. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Here's what Paul says about Jesus. In, in, in Colossians, he said he's the firstborn from the dead. Here he calls Jesus' resurrection first fruits. You know what first fruits were? We don't live in an agrarian society, but, but back then when they, when they sowed the seed and the harvest time came, the first sign of harvest, those, those first uh, fruit on the tree or, or the first thing to spring up from the ground, those were the first things to come up, and what it indicated to the person was there's more to follow, that the seed I sown was good, and, and here's the first sign of that. And that first fruit was actually considered to be the best. And Paul takes that imagery and he says, Jesus is like a first fruit. He's first, it's the best, but it's telling us there's more to come. And so go on in the verse, verse 21. He says, for by a man came death, that's Adam. 
But by a man, that's Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits of this resurrection, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When Colossians 1, 18 talks about Jesus being the firstborn from the dead, it's saying Jesus' resurrection is different in this way. When Jesus was resurrected, he never died again. He was resurrected to an immortal body. When Lazarus was resurrected, guess what? Lazarus died again. So did everyone you read of in the Old Testament that was resurrected. Jesus' resurrection was different. He was the first of something new, the first resurrected to a new kind of creation. Is at the beginning of this new creation that Jesus stands first, that he shattered death's grip and made a way for others to follow. He's the firstborn from the dead. His resurrection shows us what's to come. It's the highest in priority and rank. Now, beloved, maybe you say, well, that's great. If, if I'm in Christ, I look forward to this resurrection that is yet to come. What about now? Do we know any of this new creation right now? Well, have you ever thought of this? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Now there is a coming day where our bodies will be redeemed in resurrection and we'll have a body like Christ. But right now being in Christ and saved we are a new creation, and there's something new inside of us. I don't have time to take you there, but you might want to write down Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 and look at that later, that whole text where it talks about here's what God is doing. He is, he is making Jesus preeminent, that, that he has raised Jesus from the dead and he's making others like Jesus into this new creation so that he will be the preeminent one among many who are like him. And this is the teaching of our New Testament, beloved. Go back to Colossians chapter 1. This is what he means when he's talking and saying, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. His resurrection is the most important. And he did this, the end of verse 18, so that Jesus would be preeminent, the preeminent one. Many would be made like him, brothers and sisters in Christ, conformed to the image of Christ, right now happening through this new birth inside of us, but ultimately happening when we're glorified in his presence. And then Jesus will be the preeminent one of many who've been made like him by God's grace and for God's glory. 
This is the message that Paul is bringing us in all this terminology that Jesus is the head of the church, the beginning, he's the firstborn, that he would be preeminent in this way. Now here's the question, how does Jesus do this or why? Why does Jesus do this and why is it only Jesus who can do this? Why is he the firstborn and and why is he to be preeminent? Well, look at verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 19. What's the first word? You see it in your text? What's the first word? For. What does that mean? Isn't this terribly academic? Right? I mean, come on. I know what prepositions are. Right? What? That, beloved, you, you've got to read your Bible this way. Okay? You've got to follow, follow what the Spirit of God is saying. He's saying Jesus is preeminent. Why does he get this place? Why his resurrection so important? Here's why. Verse 19. Because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now don't just read over that. Your Bible begins with God dwelling with mankind in the garden. There's perfect harmony there. We forfeited that privilege by grasping and saying, I'd rather be God than image God. And ever since then, mankind has been estranged from God. But God has yet desired to dwell with his people. And so at certain times, in certain epochs of time, God has dwelt with his people. Think of that tabernacle in the wilderness. God said, make a tabernacle. And when they they built that tent, the fire of God came upon it, that God's presence was among his people, but in a limited way. Later on, uh, Solomon would build a temple, a magnificent structure, a beautiful place, and, and he would pray at the dedication of that temple, and he would say, God, come inhabit your temple, although I know that the very heavens cannot contain you. And he says, but in some limited sense, come and dwell with your people in this temple, and God did, and it said the glory of God filled the temple. But when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, The filling of God in him was not in a limited capacity like the tabernacle or the temple. The text tells us all the fullness of God was in him. Not limited in any capacity. This is one of the most clear, profound statements of the deity of Jesus Christ in all your Bible. The fullness, all that is God was in Jesus. Fullness of God, the totality or completeness. God took on human form without ceasing to be God in any way, simply adding humanity to himself, the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. So how is it that Jesus is preeminent, that his resurrection counts the most? Beloved, it's because of who he is is the infinite God-man. He's the only one that could bring about the kind of reconciliation that will be spoken of and initiate this new creation. God and man together in one. And he alone stands as the singular mediator between the two, 
to bring about the new creation. It couldn't be done any other way. Why can Jesus do this? Because of who he is, the infinite God-man, but also because of what he's done. Look at verse 20. And through him, that is through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the means by which Jesus brings about the new creation. This is the goal, all things to be reconciled to him, verse 20. All things to reconcile mankind, to reconcile the created order, even those things in the heavens. Christ will ultimately bring these to reconciliation. How does this happen? Now, if you're reading your Bible carefully and you say, he's going to reconcile all things, that kind of sounds like what we'd call universalism, right? Does that mean everybody's saved at the end? Doesn't really matter? Jesus does all of this? Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, we ended with verse 26 where it talks about Jesus putting down the last enemy, which is death. And it's talking about the end of the world when he returns. And look what it says in verse 27. First Corinthians 15, 27, Paul writes, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And he's talking about now that Jesus is Lord, he is ruling right now. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he's accepted who put all things in subjection under him. But when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let me just explain that to you. Here's what it's saying. At the end of the world, here's what Jesus will do. He'll put all things in subjection to him. Paul said in Colossians, he will reconcile all things. He's going to bring peace. For some, that looks like acceptance of him, accepting his terms of peace in the gospel and being reconciled. For others, it will look like being condemned by him. They will not be reconciled. He will remove them. And that's how all things that remain are subjected to him. You see that? Well, how does Jesus do this? Go back to Colossians 1. If the goal is to reconcile to himself all of these things, he will do it at the end by bringing all things in subjection to him. Notice it says that he's going to make this peace by the blood of his cross. The blood of Jesus Christ is the means of appeasing God's wrath and thereby making peace with God. Friends, are you at peace with God today? I don't mean that, that you feel warm and fuzzy sitting in here this morning. I mean objectively, 
When God looks at you, are you at peace with him? Do you have forgiveness with him? The only way that comes about is because of what Jesus has done. He shed his blood on a cross. It was a physical, literal death. And it was necessary to make peace with God. Here's why Paul includes this to the Colossians. Last week I mentioned the background of this letter. They believed that Jesus was just one of several emanations from God, kind of a spiritual being. He was, he was important, but not the greatest. And they said he's just kind of a spiritual guru or reality. And Paul says, no, this Jesus came in flesh and blood, and that blood was spilt to bring about reconciliation. And that's the only way you have peace with God is through his blood. So this is the hymn of praise to Christ. He's the head of the church. How? Well, he's the firstborn of this new order of creation. He's the highest in rank. He started it. Why? Because only he could do it as the infinite God-man. How did he do it? He did it by laying down his life physically and dying on a cross and shedding his blood. And because of that, he should be preeminent in all things. Give him his rightful place. What do we learn from this? Jesus is the Lord of the church, and he alone is worthy of of your worship. And if you take all of this hymn together, it looks like this. Who is this man? Jesus is Lord of all creation, and he's Lord of his church, and he alone is worthy of your worship. Now, there are three points of application I want to give you this morning, and we'll be done. Remember, I said we're getting to you in this. This is the you now a little bit, okay? The nice thing about it is, though, is I don't have to come up with these applications out of my own mind because Paul does it for us in this book. He's writing to people that are confused about whether or not Jesus is Lord. Isn't he just one of these emanations from God? And Paul is warning them, and he's saying, I'm, I'm warning you. Let me give you this truth up front in this hymn we sing. He's preeminent. Without him, there's nothing. Don't miss out on who he is. Why? Look at Colossians chapter 2, and look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to who? What is he saying? He's saying, is your view of Christ big enough to keep you from being deceived? Well, deceived how? There is so much misinformation about Jesus. Do you realize that, that cults who have an aberrant, unorthodox view of Jesus, do you know who they especially target and look for? They look for Christians who don't know a lot about who Jesus really is. They have enough of Jesus to be interested, but they don't really know who he is, like we've been looking at the last two weeks, and they target those kinds of people because they know you have some kind of interest, and if they can slip in just a little bit of deception, they can lead you down the wrong road. 
Is your view of Jesus Christ big enough to keep you from being deceived? But not only among the cults, among the church. Remember what I said? How much talk is there about Jesus and who he is? But there's very little understanding that he is a Lord. In many cases, in the church today, Jesus is like a heavenly rabbit's foot. And when I get in trouble, I just rub it a little bit. I just go to church a little bit more. And then he helps me because he's all about helping me and meeting my needs because that's all, all why the world exists anyway, right? And he's just another one added to that list. Don't be deceived. Jesus is Lord. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. How could you think anything less of him? He's not your rabbit's foot. He's your Lord. Do you live like that? Second point of application. Look at verse 16, chapter 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to who? Christ. You know what he's referring to here? Food, drink, festival, new moon, Sabbath. He's talking about Jewish and, and other kinds of religious feast days. And there are people that would get all excited about these, these religious rituals. And if, if you really want to be spiritual, follow the religious ritual. And when you follow the religious ritual, then you will have arrived. And Paul says, don't be fooled. You can be religious and without Christ. Those things are but a shadow. He says those things in the Old Testament were shadows pointing to the reality, and the reality is Jesus Christ himself. You have the reality. Why would you go back to the shadow? This happens in our day. People are merely religious. We're entering into a time of year where churches like this will be filled. Why? It's Christmas. You go to church. It's religious. Light the candles. Those are shadows. We're made in God's image. We're made to be worshipers. And there's some kind of thing that we want connection with the spiritual. And we think when we get into religious circles or experience religious things that, that somehow we're spiritual and that's helpful and that's growing. But you can do all of that and miss Jesus Christ. He is preeminent. Don't miss it. He's your Lord and if you're not growing in your connection and love for Jesus Christ, you're not growing. Third point of application. Look at verse 18. Now he says, let no one disqualify you. Here he steps it up. Don't be disqualified insisting on asceticism. What's asceticism? It's, it's extreme self-discipline. It's simply uh, denial of self. And, and it would be this, this idea that, that I can achieve something religious by simply saying no to everything else. 
He says, let no one disqualify you insisting on this ascetic lifestyle and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to who? The head. Who is the head? Here's what he's saying. You can do self-improving things like asceticism and say Christianity is all about do's and don'ts, so don't do this and don't do this, and what I really need to do is just get in a room and beat myself to death. Or you can say Christianity is really about the worship of messengers, and I'm a guru and a follower of this messenger. Are you on this train? Or Christianity can be about visions. I'm waiting for a personal revelation from God, so God gives me this peace in my heart, and it's a revelation from God as to what I am to do. And and Paul says, don't be disqualified. You can have all of those things and seek for all of those things and miss out on connection with the head, Jesus Christ himself. Because it's only with a living, vital connection to Jesus Christ that this happens. Look at the end of the verse, verse 19. Not holding fast to the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from who? From God. People can practice an ascetic lifestyle and say, this is growth. Look how much I grow. Look what I don't do. They can say, look how much I grow, look how much I know, I'm following this vision, I'm following this messenger, look how big my head is getting. And what Paul is saying is, beware, you can do all of that and leave Christ out of it. It's only through connection with him that true growth happens from God. Jesus is preeminent. Don't forget him. Beloved, is that the Christ you know? I love you, but I fear that some Sundays when we come in here and gather in the name of the Lord, there are people here playing church because it's cultural, because I have friends here, because it seems like nice people are here. Sometimes I go home in my heart of hearts and I wonder, Lord, did anybody see Christ here today? Did anybody see him preeminent? Did they sense a connection with the head of the body? Because that's the only way growth happens. And when we forget Christ. Close the doors. Burn the place down. Because nothing for eternity will ever happen here. But it's incumbent upon all of us to remember the Lord of the church and submit ourselves to him and keep him supreme in our thoughts and in our hearts.
God, give us grace to do so. Shall we pray?